Amen. I mentioned in first service, a lot of times I'll say when I come up here, man, what a great way to, to get us started worshiping together, and, and what a great way to prepare for me to get to teach. And, and then there's some Sundays when I just think, how am I supposed to follow that? And uh, that was a little bit of that. That was really fantastic. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. Um, I do want to make a quick comment, and then we're going to actually have a, a sermon that apparently is split in about two. I didn't realize that's how the timing would work out, but that's how it worked out the first service. Um, one, uh, be checking and watching the website and looking for opportunities to minister and serve, and especially for life groups. We're always having new life groups get started and, and going. And so, for example, just, just to kind of uh, pat ourselves on the back a little bit. We will have a, a marriage life group running again this fall, and the couple who runs it, Bob and Ann Livesay, today is their 51st anniversary. And so those are, they were at first service, and uh, man, you can't ask for better experience. So if you're going, man, how do I make sure I've got an awesome marriage that's going to last for 50 plus years? Well, they know how, apparently. So, um, so getting involved with that would be great. I also know we've got a college life group starting up, which is exciting. So be looking at the website for those details um, and, and the stuff like that's happening all the time. So I really want to encourage you, when you get an email from the church, go ahead and read it. It's not just mostly spam type stuff. And then, uh, and then also check in the website. So be a part of that. Um, so some of you remember back in March 2020, um, there was a week a, a week in which three emails went out. The first email went out like either Sunday or Monday night, and it was me saying, hey, church, because of this new virus thing, um, hey, we just, wanna, we just want you to be, be aware, be um, sensitive and gentle. The fact that some people are, are starting to get really nervous about this, and, and so when we do meet and greet time, make sure there's going to be some people who are not prepared for that. You know, do the fist bump, don't do the handshake, let's uh, tone down on hugging and that kind of stuff maybe a little bit this week. And then about Wednesday, I sent out another email that says, hey, given what we're hearing and given what we're hearing from the appropriate governing authorities and from others, we're just going to cancel meet and greet. We're not going to have that. So normally after the announcements, so we have our traditional or our pattern is we do, a, we do a song, an introductory good song to engage and get everybody going. And then, and then Paul comes up as the lead pastor of announcements and he gives some announcements. And then, uh, and then, uh, then he, then, then he would say, okay, and everybody jump out of your chair. If it's me, I say bail on your pew, you know, whatever, and go greet some people. And we say, we're just going to cancel that this week. Some of you have been coming only during COVID. So, you know, we used to do that. Um, and so we said, you know, we were like, okay, so we're just going to cancel that this week. And then Friday, the email went out saying, we're not meeting Sunday. Um, and so we're, you know, you're gonna have to watch us online and, and John and, and his whole team, um, within just a few days went from, hey, we've got three weeks to we're going to try to go online for Easter to, could you do it Sunday? And so he pulled that off, and it was amazing. We've been able to do that <coughs> and continue to do it for those who, for whatever reason, cannot be here. Now, so next week, next week, we're going to be doing meet and greet again. So I've got to train you. I know it's exciting. I'm pretty pumped. So I've got to retrain you on how to do this because we, we don't naturally do it well. Um, as humans, we just don't. Nothing personal, that's what it means to be human. So I want you to understand why we do it and, and get what's going on there. So we turn to a specific passage deep in the Old Testament when we're looking at this because the ancient Middle Eastern ethic of hospitality is, is the model that we use. It's the biblical picture. Um, it's been there for thousands of years since prehistory. 
So we turn to Genesis 18. So if you've got your Bible, turn over to Genesis 18. <coughs> and we're going to look at this passage. This is, this is Abraham. Now, right now, I don't remember which one I saw it on, but on one of the, the movie things where you can you know, watch movies online or whatever, there's a movie that's out. It's been out for years called Hidalgo. If you've not seen it, it's a great family flick. Hidalgo. Well, there's a scene in it where the main character interacts with a Bedouin warlord, with a Bedouin chieftain. That's the correct picture, I believe, for Abraham. So several thousand years ago, you have this, this Middle Eastern nomad um, living in the same kind of tents they make now, dressing in the same ways they dress now, and, and traveling around the region. And in Abraham's case, apparently, it was a massive family system of tents. Um, we, we know that because later he's going to go to war by himself against five kings and beat them. And so this is, this is a powerful man. Wherever he went, it changed, the, it, it destabilized the whole region probably when he moved his people around through the region. <clears throat> so this is, this is not some you know, homeless guy living in a tent. This is a powerful man in his own time and in his own right. Here's where it begins in Genesis 18. He lifted up his eyes. He's sitting under a tree, by the way. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick. Three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood there by them under the tree while they ate. Now, so when we look at this passage as a model of true hospitality, and this is, this is one of our passions here, and it has been for a long time, is true hospitality. We use this as our model, and what do we see? What do we see when we see... Abraham looks up and he sees that there are these three men and he intuits something about them, but truly it doesn't matter what they look like. He sees three men walking through the desert and what does he do first? He runs to them. So he seeks them out. He sees it, he, clearly in this passage, he sees it as the greatest honor for them to come partake of his hospitality. That's the great honor. That is our mindset. We know perfectly well that there are people who come to church, and on, by the way, about 10% of you probably today are, are guests, maybe a little more than that, maybe first-time guests. So you're going to get a peek behind the curtain today of, of how and why we greet the way we do here. And, and again, we've been out of practice for a year in a lot of ways, so we're gonna, that's, that's why I'm doing this today. We want to do this well. We want to do it right. And so we have this mindset. He runs to them, and he is truly, authentically honored. He is humbled by their willingness. And he, he comes with such a humble attitude. Notice, though the powerful man that he is, he runs to them and he falls at their feet. I mean, he humbles himself before them and begs them to give him the honor of coming to him, of coming to his home, of letting him serve them. Now, this, this is a start. This, and we're going to talk about this more next week. But man, this idea of just tolerating people, of tolerance, is so pathetic it is so weak. The idea that the, the standard of the world is, well, we need to have tolerance for one another. Like, that's it? That's the best you can think of? Tolerance is a huge mistake. It's not what we need to be aiming for. It is the lowest common denominator. I've said before, I think if I asked a guest, 
hey, what was your experience like at South Spring this week? And they said, well, I was tolerated. I would say, someone's going to get fired. I mean, and I, it may be the whole congregation. Like, I may be like, you're all done. We're starting over. You're all, go, go, go. Anyway, but that whole, like, that would be awful, wouldn't it? We don't want that. We want them to say, this is the most welcoming experience that I've ever had in my life, at least that I didn't have to pay for. And so we acknowledge that it's going to be hard for us to compete with Disney. Um, if you go to Disneyland, you may feel slightly more welcome. Or maybe I often reference Pine Cove. You go to Pine, we don't have a bunch of college students out there. The deacons aren't out there jumping, you know, excited that you're here. And don't think I haven't thought about it, by the way. That's a day I've considered it. This is a, that we would say, how do we, how do we make sure you know you're in the right place? You belong here. And that would be the standard. It's the most welcoming experience you've ever had in your life, at least that you didn't have to pay for. That is our goal. And that's what Abraham is trying to create here. Look at what he does. This is, <coughs> this is just nuts. So first, he's so humbled, and he promises so little. In his mind, this is so little. It's just the bare minimum. Listen, this is the least we can do. Let, just rest. Let me get you a little water for your feet. Let me, let me get you just a morsel, just a, just a snack, a little snack. That'd be it. Then he runs, verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent and said to Sarah, now this is such a husband thing to do. Isn't this great? Quick, three sias of fine flour. Now, now just so you will know, a sia, this is going to really help you out, a, three sias equals one ephah. Good? No, you, don't, you still don't know, right? So here's what you need to know. A sia equals, in any, anybody who cooks, bakes, any bread makers in the room, a sia one sia is 6.5 quarts of flour, okay? And he says, quick, three sias of flour. Make it into bread, right? So that's uh, 1.5 quarts for a loaf. So in the end, he says, quick, 20 quarts, 13 loaves of bread for these two men, for these three men. Quick, 13 loaves of bread. That's his over the top. This is the best he knows. And by the way, it's the fine flour, Probably Sarah and her and the other ladies in the, in the caravan, they're, they're the ones grinding out flour from the wheat. And so the idea of having fine flour, it's not like you can go buy that at the store. You've got to get, so it's the very best. The fattened calf, the little calf that's set aside, that's literally fattened and prepared in case someone important shows up so that we can have the very best possible meat. He is doing the very best he knows how to do for these people. It's the best he has. And so when you go, man, it's the, one, of our, it's one of our mindsets here. We have the same mindset. So in the same way that like an eight-year-old might buy his mother Legos for Mother's Day, right? Because it's the best thing he knows how to give is Legos. That's it. Like, and it's the best gift he knows to give, so he gives that to you. Where I am the lead pastor, we serve donuts for the same reason. <laughs> it's the best gift I know how to give is donuts. And so that you would go... Wow. And, and think about, by the way, for some of us, it's just a, it's a, like a wonderful little snack to have on a Sunday morning. Go like, oh yeah, that's awesome. I get to have donuts. It's so fun. But honestly, for some of the young families who have lots of little kids, not having to prepare breakfast in the morning, or when you got a whiny kid who's like, oh, I don't want to go to church. You're like, they're donuts. And the kid's like, okay. Like that's <laughs> just removing that. That's very, all of that's super intentional. We want people to come and to want to be here and to know we want you here. We have the best. And it's not because we're the best, it's because you're the best. We are so honored that you are present, that you have decided to come. As one of our staff members from First Baptist used to say, 
You know, you have just a few seconds to, to get someone's attention and to connect with them. And he would point out, there's probably, there are people who come and visit that their grandmother has been praying for 17 years every single day. God, just get them back in church. And you've come one time to church, and our experience, the experience we want you to have is, no, you belong here. You should be here next week. You should be here during the week. This is where you belong. And we know that's a heavy responsibility. We're so authentically glad that you're here. And consider this, when you meet someone out in the community, an unchurched person or even a non-believer, and you're interacting with them, usually it's usually one-to-one. It's you and they're serving you in some way, or they're engaging with you in some way, or they're working with you in some way. They're doing some project with you. It's one-to-one. You get them here, it's 10-to-1. About 10% of the people who come on Sunday morning are, are guests-ish. And so, and so that being said, that's why it should be the most welcoming experience they've ever had, because they're outnumbered 10-to-1. This is our house. We're, we're bringing them to our place. This is our home. We should be no less hospitable with some, a guest here than we would be if they came into your personal dwelling. No less. Maybe more. That we go out of our way to do that. We have a deep and sincere love for you if you're a guest here. This is one of the things that I have a hard time with. I have a, often, I will have a deep and sincere love and care for someone who works for me or who serves with me or whatever, but I don't know about you, but I forget to say it. I forget to ask. I have to warn our staff, you'll probably never feel micromanaged by me, but you're probably going to feel neglected sometimes. I promise you it's not intentional. You just, if you think of it, please tell me. I will try to discipline myself to do a better job of asking. My natural bent and engagement with the world is, if you don't let me know, I assume you're great. You must be doing awesome. That will not work in a hospitable mindset. It won't work. We've got to reach out. We don't know what type of experience they're bringing here. We don't know how they, what they've experienced in when it comes to the local church. I get distracted easily. I fall back into my old habits and ruts. And that's what keeps us from being hospitable. The word, um, the, the Greek word comes from two different words, xenos, meaning stranger, and philos, meaning friend of or a love for. And so for us to recognize our calling here in this church is to be a friend to the stranger. We're not seeker-friendly in that we don't water down in any way the gospel or the, or, the, or the passages we study or any of that. We are lost and seeker and unchurched-friendly in that, and, and poorly church-friendly and traumatically churched friendly, in that we want to reach out and it be the most welcoming experience you've ever had. So in this service especially, there's something that we need to develop the habit of doing. I'm going to give you a few. One is, when you come and when you sit, in this service especially, we're starting to get back to that point of people coming, you need to scoot to the center. Just go ahead. Try to, try to not leave spaces between you and the next person coming towards the center. That allows our ushers to lead people around the edge of the room. They get here late to seat them. And on some Sunday mornings, if you get here on time, it doesn't look like it's going to be totally packed. And it feels a little weird to scoot in right next to somebody when there's still seats empty over here. But a lot of Sundays, those seats are going to get filled. So that is, that is hospitality that a guest doesn't have to be led right down the middle of the row and right down the middle during the beginning of the service and seated right here. It is, it is a part of hospitality to leave them the back, further back rows, and the outside edges. So please, especially in this second service, this is one of the things we want to do. That's one. Two, when we do the meet and greet, when Paul says, jump out of your chair um, and go find someone you don't know, what he means by that, he's not speaking a foreign language, what he means by that is leave the chair you're in and get out into the rows and go find people. Now, 
You may be going, yeah, but Chris, I'm an introvert. I'm shy. That's hard for me to do. Two things. One, it's not about you. That's one. Two, it is recognize if you stay in your seat and everybody else does what they're supposed to do, you're going to get dogpiled. Because you're going to look like a guest standing there in your chair like this. People are coming for you. It's going to be tons like, hey, are you new here? Are you like, are you like, and that's going to happen to you? So just as an insider trader secret, if you're an introverted person and this freaks you out, here's your best bet. Wander around the room looking like you're greeting people. That's by, it's your best shot is to walk around, just, just kind of wander around nodding at people. I'm fine with that. Anything that gets people out of the chairs, get out of those chairs and go find someone. I promise you there are people who need to be greeted by you. Here's a funny little factor that you may not realize. If you come to this church one week before someone else, in their mind, you've always been here, right? And so if they see you and you don't greet, they're going, oh, that guy's always been here and he's not getting out. He doesn't come greet me. I don't feel as welcome. We want to get out of those chairs. It's like three minutes long. You can tolerate it. You can make it. You can get through it. Now, I will say, if you are, for medical reasons or anything like that, if, if you're still concerned about COVID and the COVID spread, we've not had any spread, as far as I know, at any point in the entire year through our, big, our, our great room services. But that's still weird for you or hard for you, then wear a mask. People will catch the hint. Or it's totally okay to go, uh, just give them a, an awkward face and be like, uh, no, no. Right? Or do the fist bump. The fist bump is totally, it has become a totally appropriate and even manly way to express greeting now. It's not a second best to the handshake. It's totally accepted. I think it's great. So don't hesitate to do any of those things. Whatever someone offers you, if you're fine with anything, if they offer you that, give them that. Don't force them to shake hands if they're, or, and if they do this, don't wrap them around like don't. That they're, they're giving you that, they're giving you that barrier for a reason. This is good hospitality, is to love people where they are. I also want to comment, if you're in here, you, and you're, especially if you're part of kind of the core, the kind of the core leaders and members of the church, typically, not universally by any means, sit in the front about two-thirds, okay? And the back third, not, again, not universally, has, is, uh, typically has a lot of guests in that section. Therefore, if you're a member of the church, when you leave your chair, you're going to head to the back because we don't want to ask our guests to greet one another, that's awkward, right? So you get out of your chair and you head towards the back. That's what we'll be looking for. This is training and there's accountability in your mind before God that we are supposed to eagerly, eagerly seek to help the person who is an unchurched person or is a new person to feel welcome. It is a weird thing to come to church. It is weird that we ever have unchurched people just randomly show up at church. That doesn't happen in any other religion I assume, how many of you have randomly just gone to a mosque, just shown up on their, worship, on their services? No? No, that doesn't happen. For some reason here in the Judeo-Christian world, there's an ethic for people just to show up at church. Why? Because you're supposed to go to church. I don't know why. I know nothing beyond that, so I just go sometimes. That's great. We're so glad that you're here. That used to be why churches had steeples, so people who, didn't, who knew they were supposed to be a church but didn't know where to go could spot it. Like, oh, there's one. We'll go there. Today, people come visit typically because they've met a Christian. They don't come because there's a church. They come because they've met a Christian. And here's the deal. And we have gotten terrible at inviting people. It really is awful. When you stop and consider how often your grandparents invited people to church, and that was probably to a horrendous experience sometimes, versus how often we invite people to a church where we've removed barrier after barrier after barrier. I don't want to go to church. People are always dressing up there and competing there. Not so much. 
Oh, I don't want to go there because it means we've got to get up early and get breakfast ready. Like, hey, good news. Don't have to do that. Oh, I don't want to go there because everybody's so stuffy and stuck up. It's not, everybody, everybody's so, nope, see, it's not, it's such, I hate organized religion. Yeah, we're, we're not organized and are not very religious. It's a, we are, we are here to say, we're removing barrier after barrier after barrier on purpose. So, and the purpose of that, if it's just so we can come and enjoy it, is great. This is a holy huddle. Part of what we're doing is the believers gathering together. But what are we going to do when unbelievers show up to our huddle? Do we really think that what Jesus would have us do is just huddle up and kind of force them out? Make them feel awkward and uncomfortable? No, this is our... No. No, no, no. This is a freak experience for an unchurched person to show up in our house. What a great opportunity. We outnumber them 10 to 1. We're supposed to be being hospitable to them in their house. But then they're showing up in ours? I should be low-hanging fruit. And we can't wait to welcome you. So there's that. So in the meet and greet time, recognize this. Third one. Name tags. Name tags are back. They actually print now in a way that shows your name if you're not doing children's ministry stuff and you don't have, to have other stuff there that makes it easier. This is good for all of us um, because we haven't seen each other, some of us, in a long time. And so it's easy to forget people's names. It's already going to happen, by the way. You're going to greet somebody. Hi, I'm so-and-so. Are you new here? And they're going to say, no, I helped found the church. I'm on the leadership board. That's just going to, it's going to happen be okay with it. We're all going to be okay with that, that that's going to happen. Name tags help because very often when there's a, a name we should know, but we don't for whatever reason, maybe your brain's like mine, mine is a sieve. And when any pressure comes in on top, all the stuff at the bottom goes out. And so a lot of times that's names. It's very helpful to me and it's helpful to each other for us to go ahead and stop, check in, get the name tags. I know they don't often, they don't always stick perfectly on some fabric. Again, that's okay. We'll just, we, we can survive that stuff. But to do that is a great thing to do from a hospitality perspective. Um, fourth, we need 40 more people in preschool ministry. 40. If we had 40 more people, we could end pre-registration for our preschool. Now, a couple things about that. One, I consider it maybe the greatest failure of our church that you have to pre-register to bring your children to children's ministry. It's necessary right now, and there's no way to fix it beyond all of us. If you're not serving and you're capable of serving with children, what we need is 40 more people to do so, and they have to be able to, at least 25 of them need to be able to be doing it right now. It's only for a few months out of the year, if, you're able, if you get into a good rotation. If it means you miss the great room service, and that's the only way you can do it, then miss the great room service. Notice that Jesus doesn't teach, no, not only does he, he focuses his attention. Is it important for us to gather together? Yes, we're memorizing a passage about that in Hebrews 10. But notice what significance Jesus puts on the children when he's here on earth and teaches. It's not a small deal. We're, Ginger and I are watching The Chosen now. We just started, I don't know about you, but I've, I've always like, I've wanted to watch it. But when I watch things, I'm always doing something else. Like I'm working on my taxes and watching something. And this felt too important to do that with, so I had to how do I focus my attention and really watch this? So this week we've had some time. We started watching it. My favorite thing about the wedding in Cana is when it shows Jesus sitting at the children's table at the wedding feast. That's so, I think that's so dead on. All the, children, the, all the adults are out doing this stuff, and there's a children's table, and that's where Jesus is sitting on a little bitty stool surrounded by children. I think that's a correct picture of Jesus' priorities. I think it is a failure of our church that we have not yet figured out how to get enough people to serve with children, especially during this second service.
I think it's a hospitality failure. We need to get this right. And it only takes 40 more people. So if you're not serving in some specific way like that, please step up and take on this role. Um, I, I, then we could end registration, pre-registration for it, and, uh, and then whoever shows up, their children can be there to hear the gospel and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ in a powerful way. So I'm, I'm really asking and begging that we would step up in that way. And then number five, and this is a weird one, and it's hard for us especially, and that is when we can be on time and early because guests don't know to be late. And so guests get here on time very often, and they're seated awkwardly, and no one's greeting them if they're on time if we're 15 minutes late. So whenever possible, we want to be early and on time, be there in the foyer to greet people. I would love to see a guest be greeted at least seven times before they make it into this room, bare minimum. It should be 70, after all. We outnumber them 10 to 1. But at least seven different times that someone would be greeted from their car until they get here. And the only way that's going to happen is this, is your eyes have to be up, because here's the rut. The rut is, and we do this biologically, we all do, is that when you show up to church, when you show up to any crowd of people, you biologically, you look for faces that you know. You scan the room and you're like, who do I know? Because the people who we know make us feel safe. It floods us with the right hormones to make us feel good and safe. We're pack animals. I know them. They're part of my tribe. They're part of my pack. I can't wait. To, okay, good. I feel good. There's other people I know. And we will beeline right past strangers in order to, to connect with someone we know. Maybe one of the hardest things I ever heard from anybody describing our church from the outside was, you really seem to like each other. They meant it as a compliment. It broke my heart. Because clearly they were implying, I mean, not me so much, but one another. It's good that we love one another. That's how people know we're his disciples is by our love for one another. But I want people to experience it from us as well. So that we are intentionally greeting people. The only way to do that is to break the habit. Is when you get here on Sunday morning, your eyes are up and you're going, I want to find someone I don't know. I want to find someone I don't know and I want to greet them and let them know how proud we are that they are here. Um, that's our goal. Those things. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we have a list of, the question was, are there a list of Sunday schools and life groups? They're out of here at the information desk. There's, I think there's even a map. Yeah, there's a map of where they meet, what time they meet, what they are, and all that kind of stuff. Every once in a while, because of, like recently, because of an air conditioning failure in a building, we've had to shift them. But generally speaking, we have the plan. Yeah, it's there. Anybody can get one at the, at the information desk. Good. Okay. All right, good. That was half the sermon and plus a few more minutes. Wow, I went even a little longer this time. That's great. Okay, so let's pick up where Paul left us. Thank you so much, by the way. I'll say again, uh, Paul, that last week's sermon was fantastic. Um, I especially, I, I will tell you that the picture of angels standing on their tiptoes trying to see who would be redeemed today was epic. It was pure poetry. I greatly appreciated it. Like listening to it was like Yes, the, the imagery that angels, by the way, it, it tells us, Matthew, it tells us that, um, uh, that there's more celebration in heaven. I think it's in Matthew or Luke, the count of the 99 sheep, um, that, that there's more celebration in heaven over even one lost sheep who was found. The idea that there would be anybody here who doesn't know the gospel and that the angels know we're sharing the gospel and that the angels are standing on their tiptoes waiting like to see who will be redeemed today is such a great picture. I so appreciate that. 
So let's jump into uh, chapter 1. I'm going to read through 13, uh, down through 21, and, uh, and touch on a little bit today before we run out of time. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, you learned last week, and again, if you've not heard or seen last week's sermon, I, I strongly urge you to check it out. Paul really began to unpack this, this section um, really well and pointed out there are four commands in this passage. And it's been interesting because it's been one, um, it's been one because, 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 since, since, since. First um, Peter, in, in this letter, Peter has been laying the groundwork. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. He's laying this beautiful mosaic out on the floor, one stone at a time, so that then when you back up and you see the whole thing, you understand what he's doing here, what he's unpacking. And we have tons of different pictures to describe this. That's what's going on. And let's say Paul. I meant Peter if I said Paul. Anyway, Paul preached last week. Peter wrote the book. That's the, I may get those confused. All right, so, uh, so here we go. So last week we heard, one, command number one, set your hope on the grace. And it's not even just set it on the grace. It's set your hope fully on the grace. Don't set it on anything else. Anything else you set it on is a bad idea. Keep all your hands and feet in the car. It is supposed to, you're, this is this, only this, nothing else. If you're setting your hope on anything else, you're a fool. Set your hope fully on this and this alone, on His grace. And then the second was, be holy. Again, vital the order of that. Set your hope fully on the grace. This is your identity. This is who you are. This is how, this is, it's, it's like Jesus when He got asked the question, um, Lord, um, uh, what should I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, what, do you, what should you do? What you should do is believe on the one the Father has sent. We, we all want to be involved in some way that makes us seem important. And He's like, no, no. The behavior is a spiritual behavior. Believe in the one the Father has sent. Set your hope on the grace fully. Then live as a holy person. Be holy. Choose holy things. Be holy because He is holy. And today we'll uncover number three. Oh, no, no, we won't. We won't quite get to number three, it looks like. Okay, but first, since we have a sen another sense statement <clears throat> or two. There's a lot of since statements as well. Again, Paul unpacked those last week. There's a whole bunch of them. Since this, since this, since this, because this, because that. And then we get there. So we get verse 17, and if. Now, this is a weird one for us. It, if is a great translation, but it's not if as in who knows if. It is, well, if this, then that. That's the way it works. And this is true. If you're married, you should love your wife. And then you go, well, I'm married. Like, okay, well then, if that's the truth, then this. It's really another sense statement. It's really another because statement. If you call on him as father. Now, um, apparently, 
this is a place where I'm going to have to full stop, and this will probably, this will run out the rest of our time. Um, so if you call him Father, wow, we so easily as Christians slide over because we're so used to this idea of God as Father, and we don't understand how epic this really is. What does it mean that we call him Father? The passage we looked at today, um, the reading from Psalm 130, you forgive and therefore you may be feared. What a strange, I, I can fear you because you will forgive me. That is a weird concept, unless it's linked to the type of relationship where that makes sense. And Peter, we're going to unpack this next week, but Peter is going to focus now in on the second command, which is about conducting yourself with fear, fear of the Lord. And this is a tough concept for us, it can be a tough concept for us. Now, for those of us who have really healthy relationships with their with their dad they were raised by, your adoptive father, your bio father, whatever, the, the man, the father you were raised by, then you're going to have an intuitive advantage over people who have a poor relationship with dad. People have a poor example as dad. Now, you can still learn it no matter who you are, but I think those of us who are raised with this idea of a healthy father, I have a, I have a very healthy relationship with my dad. He, is, he was never in any way abusive always a, a positive person. Of course, he wasn't perfect. He said and did things that he would regret, that I would regret, and as, of course, I did too as a son. But this is the basic idea that as a child, we are allowed to call him father. I don't know if you know this or not, but for example, in Islam, which is in the, in very much so in the progress towards being a third of the world's population would be Muslim. Just like right now, a third of the world's population is, claims to be Christian. But in Islam, to call Allah Father is a sin. In fact, it can be blasphemous. It can be an expression of the sin of shirk. In other words, to make Allah like us. Allah, the God of Islam, is not like us. He does not slum with us. Human language does not be, is never used to describe him. He is not our father, and to claim him as father can get you killed. It is that serious a sin. The first time I heard that, I wept for the loss of God as father. What would it be like to know that there is a creator God out there, and he doesn't particularly love you? He isn't like a father. He is a Lord and master. You are a slave and a servant, not a son or a daughter at all. That was heartbreaking to me. And to recognize instead, we follow a God who proclaims himself that Jesus, when Jesus was asked by his disciples, how should we pray? That Jesus begins this way. Pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. I'm going to do it in the version that I grew up with, the Episcopal version. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I was raised on that. How easily we slide over our Father. What an amazing gift that we get to call him Father. We're about to talk about fear and conducting oneself with fear. And the idea that Peter is going to lay the foundation of, you need to conduct yourself with fear because you call him Father. So clearly, he's trying to help us understand what kind of fear. Is this the terror kind of fear? The fear of the wrath 
that He would destroy us, that He would utterly just leave us wasted, that we are children of His wrath? And the answer to that is no. That is not the type of fear. The language here is a different type of fear. Again, we're going to unpack it next week. But the idea of it being linked to dad makes such good sense to me. It reminds me of an event that happened in my childhood. So some of you are obviously way too young to remember this. But in school, um, when I was a kid, it was not uncommon, especially for some kids, to receive corporal punishment. In other words, what we all colloquially called pops, right? We got pops. That's what we called pops. Where we, we get pops. And I have so many great stories about getting pops, and I don't know that it's appropriate or not, to be perfectly honest, in a school setting, but I do, I do regret that my children have not gotten to experience it. It is, a, it is a rite of passage that was huge for me to experience it. It really, like I look back on none of it with regret or resentment. It is all now fond memories to me, not always at the moment, but now, now I look back with that. <clears throat> I remember being in the principal's office, probably the vice principal's office, knowing our school in the vice principal's office, and having the vice principal say, <clears throat> do you just want me to give you pops, or do you want me to call your dad? Okay? Now, I, I wasn't afraid of, I didn't think my dad would kill me. I didn't think my dad would abuse me. I didn't think he would inappropriately punish me. He was very reasonable and rational about punishment. But I said, pops now. Because I had a reverent fear of the ability of my father to bring consequences into my life that I knew could be much worse than the vice principal giving me pops. And so I recognized I had a fear of that. And I also had a dread of disappointing him. I had a, a dread of upsetting him. Again, I didn't think he was going to kick me out of the family. Nothing was going to change about our relationship at all. But I had a reverent fear of him. There's a special kind of fear when we know that someone loves us but isn't afraid of us. This is one way the fathers on earth are a mirror version of the real father in heaven. And most of us, many who have a bad relationship with our earthly fathers, this is tough because the main job of a father, and I'll come back to this, but the main job of a father, you've heard me say it a million times if you've been here long, is to represent the paternal traits, the fatherly traits of Almighty God well. That's our job. It's our number one job. It's our main job. In many ways, it's our only job as father. Just like we talked about with mother, it is the maternal traits of God that she's supposed to exemplify. That's the job. And so for us to have that focus and to be able to follow through with that focus, that's what's going on here. So this is why it can be a challenge for us if we have a bad example of dad. It can be a challenge for us to understand this idea. But the good news is we have a father and he is in heaven and he loves you. And he wants to make you his very own. He wants to they offer them. Really, one way to understand the gospel is this. One way to understand the gospel is this. He says, I will adopt you. I have purchased you. I have made it a pathway easy for you. Come to me and let me make you my own. And as important as it is to have an earthly father, the idea would be, especially in the case of like this, when you're an orphan, we read the little story that we read or watch the story of Orphan Annie and going, man, how cool would it be to be adopted by, by Daddy Warbucks? But instead to go, well, instead I'm adopted by... Don't we love being connected to famous people by powerful people? Oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. Oh, yeah, I know him. Oh, yeah, I've met him. But the idea that we would go, wait, he's your dad? The almighty maker of heaven and earth? The great and almighty one? He's your dad? Yes. 
He has adopted me and He has chosen me and He has given me a new name. And He has made me His very own. And this is the gospel. So it's worth stopping here to say, this is the gospel and there are angels who are standing tiptoe right now, hoping if you don't know this, if you've never accepted the free gift of being adopted by the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, they're standing on tiptoes watch now, right now, hoping to get to experience the celebration of you, of you being redeemed and adopted by this God. We don't fully understand it. Kids who are adopted don't. That's okay to accept that free gift. That's what we're looking for. So I want to pray this over us, and we'll stop here and pick up there next time. Father, we are so grateful for the good gift. <laughs> Once again, Abba, Father. Just, we just slide right over it. I do it every time. It is such a miracle that could only come from you, this love that you would have to choose us, Lord, that you would love us enough to call us your sons and daughters, that you would send your only begotten Son, the only begotten Son that we could be purchased out of all the different situations we find ourselves in and into a right relationship with you as our Father. So Lord, because we call you Father, because we call you Father, because we are your children, this is who we are, this is what we are, and now the fact that we get to live some of these things out, that you let us show hospitality to people in your name, people out there in their homes and in their words and in their jobs and here in ours, Lord, that we get to, help, we get to have them here in our home. For anyone who is a guest today, Lord, I pray that you would help them to experience the truth through your Spirit, that they are deeply loved by you here in this place. So Lord, I pray today that you would guide us through learning to live this out more and more all the time. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand. Stand if you will. And let's, again, this is why we do this invitation time. The reason we do this invitation time is because of, of exactly situations like this that you may be thinking, I need to respond to this. What does it mean that God is my father? If he is my father, what does that mean? How could my life and should my life be different because of that? If he's not my father, if I've never accepted that gift, let today be the day of salvation where you accept that free gift. Come and let us know. If you've been through the Welcome Home team and you're ready to join this dysfunctional family, you could come up here and let us know, um, and we would love to, uh, to get that settled. Anything else, if you need to just pray where you are, if you need to head over to the prayer corner and pray with somebody, you can do that. Um, we're here for whatever it is the Spirit is leading you to do. All right?